afternoon, brother, and let's begin our afternoon worship with hymn number 766, which is taken from the psalm that we will be reading, 766, the first tune. It's a long psalm, lots of verses, but we're not, we're not singing very much of it, but... Eight verses seems like a lot to us, but it's not (laughs) compared to the song. Let's please stand as we sing. 766.
Please remain standing for prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. We pray for grace as we now (coughs) approach it uh, to read in its entirety that you will draw near to us and show us your glory, even as Moses prayed. Forgive our sins now (coughs) in this hour as we come to you. We would uh, wash our hands and cleanse our hearts uh, through and only through the blood of, of the Lamb in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Bless this hour as uh, Brother John comes back and brings us uh, the word again. We pray that you'll strengthen him with strength in his soul and, and uh, give us grace uh, to hear it with a ready mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Often as we have gone through the Psalms, uh, we have come across what's called, what are called imprecatory prayers, that is, uh, calling upon God to bring to pass uh, the promised curses uh, upon our enemies. And uh, I, for one, have struggled with how to uh, process these um, This psalm is probably the imprecatory psalm of all imprecatory psalms. The language is very strong and hard to reconcile uh, with our master's uh, spirit that he was of when he was here on earth. And yet, uh, as Spurgeon uh, reminds us, by the very title of the psalm, he says at the very outset, this title shows that the psalm has a meaning with which it is fitting for men of God to have fellowship before the throne of the Most High. It's a prayer or a psalm for the chief musician, so it was to be uh, sang before God in fellowship with God. But what is that meaning? This is a question of no small difficulty, and only a very childlike spirit will ever be able to answer it. And then he goes on and says, Truly, this is one of the hard places of Scripture, a passage which the soul trembles to read, yet, as it is a psalm unto God and given by inspiration, it is not ours to sit in judgment upon it but to bow our ear to what God, the Lord, would speak to us therein, or or in it. And we also must not think that this is just an Old Testament sentiment. sentiment. Uh, The New Testament uh, also... Uh, carries this idea of vengeance. I won't read it, but uh, Revelation uh, 14 talks about the wine of the wrath of God, and it's unmixed wine, and that is what we're seeing in this psalm. It's the wrath of God not mixed with mercy. And it is the basis for the patience of the saints. 
The book of Revelation, of course, was very much written to people who were being persecuted uh, because of their faith. And that's probably why uh, we in, in America cannot relate to this type of language because we have not seen our husbands and our brothers carried off and, and beaten and tortured and killed because of their testimony. And so uh, we must not uh, shy away from this as, as not being uh, for us because Paul told the believers in Thessalonica in Second Thessalonians that to you, <clears throat> you have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. That was, you remember the apostles when they were first being persecuted in the book of Acts. What gave them the joy? It was because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And Paul says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those who trouble you. This is justice in action on behalf of the people of God. And here's what they were to rest in. You who are troubled, rest with us. Not that the rapture is going to come and get you out of this problem situation, but he says, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that do not know God and that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. So on that day of our uh, glorification, part of the glory uh, will be Jesus in flaming fire uh, taking that vengeance. So with that in mind, I will just read now uh, through this psalm the version will be uh, New American Standard I've got to get the right column here so it's for the music director or chief musician a psalm of David God of my praise do not be silent for they have opened a wicked and deceitful mouth against me they have spoken against me with a lying tongue they have also surrounded me with words of hatred and have fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. So they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked person over him, and may an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, may he come out guilty. And may his prayer become sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. Peter applies this to Judas Iscariot. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg. And may they seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. May the creditor seize everything that he has. And may strangers plunder the product of his labor. May there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. May his descendants be eliminated. May their name be wiped out in the following generation. May the guilt of his fathers be remembered before Yahweh, and do not let the sin of his mother be wiped out. 
May they be before Yahweh continually, so that he may eliminate their memory from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the afflicted and needy person, and the despondent in heart to put them to death. He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, and it entered his body like water and like oil into his bones. May it be to him as a garment with which he covers himself, as a belt which he constantly wears around himself. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and of those who speak evil against my soul. But you, Yahweh, the Lord, deal kindly with me for the sake of your name, because your mercy is good. Rescue me, for I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting, and my flesh has grown lean without fatness. I also have become a disgrace to them. When they see me, they shake their head. Help me, Yahweh, my God. Save me according to your mercy. And may they know that this is your hand. You, Yahweh, have done it. They will curse, but you bless. When they arise, they will be ashamed, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor, and may they cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord, and I will praise him in the midst of many. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. One other use that we can make of this uh, imprecation is to remember ourselves apart from God, in our sinful state, in our natural state. This was how the judge viewed our sin and how what we deserved and how uh, much gratitude, uh, additional gratitude, to see it in this detail uh, that we owe to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving us from this condemnation. There is now no condemnation. Before Brother John comes to us and uh, brings the word again, let's turn in our hymnals, uh, Trinity, to number 346. Did I get that right? Yeah, 346. An evening hymn. Shall we all stand as we sing, please?
seated, Brother John. <clears throat> we are going to take a look at another of the Psalms this evening. I suspect one that is familiar to you all, Psalm 8. If you would like to open your Bibles to there. He spoke this morning of the need to have that faith in God that allows us to not ignore circumstances. Of course, that would be a silly thing to try to do, but to be able to cope with them not by simply enduring, but by, by finding contentment and enjoying the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is leading us. In order to be able to do that, in order to find that which we can focus our attention on in those hard and difficult days of life, it is important that we know what we're focusing our attention on. And what, what is it that we as God's people desire more than anything else? Well, it is to see and to know better the glory of God. There, there is something that will capture our imagination if we properly understand what it is that we know about him that lifts our soul up from those, those dark places that we sometimes find ourselves in in life. And so I, I thought it appropriate to uh, look at this psalm. Again, I suspect that all of you have heard at least a few of the verses, if not the whole thing, uh, many times before. But let us begin this afternoon by simply the reading of God's word. Psalm 8. O Lord... Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed himself, or who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are, or that you uh, take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May we bow in prayer. Father, because the world is so much with us, we can lose sight of your glory sometimes. It is our prayer this afternoon that as we consider this word about your glory, that we would have that renewed interest in the things of God, those things that pull us heavenward, that lift our soul up from the dark valley, even the valley of the shadow of death, lift us up so that we once again remember where our home is in that heavenly realm that we await even now here on this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we stop to consider the glory of God, truly it can be said that we are dealing with a subject that is too high and too wonderful to be able to take in. 
I don't think that there is any child of God who has stopped to consider just how great our Lord is and not been almost overwhelmed. Perhaps you remember childhood days, standing out and looking at the stars, being told how far away they are, and had the question of those who pointed them out, hey, what's behind the one that is furthest away? Is there an end to them? If there is, then what's on the other side? That kind of question. We began to think of infinity, and it just boggles our minds. And yet, when we think of the edge of the universe, you know, I don't know what's on the other side except this. I know God's there. And maybe there is nothing else. But wherever wherever there is a there, our God is there. And again... It stretches our imagination to be able to picture how great the God is who could create something like what we see. Do you? Well, no, most of you don't. There are some of us who remember uh, one of the first of the Russian astronauts who went in orbit in outer space. I don't know if you remember. He brought back the report. I was out there, and I didn't see God. We have people all around us like that. Whether they put it into words or not, we know that they have their doubts about whether he exists and if he is, what he is like. In contrast to those who claim not to see God anywhere, David stood out and he looked at the heavens and he looked at the earth. He looked at the animals that wandered about upon it and he saw God everywhere. And that is, of course, what ought to be our nature, our habit, his name, that which he is known by, what he has revealed to us in Scripture of who he is and his character, David sees, and he sees him everywhere. The waters whose boundaries are marked, the beauty of a sunset, the picture of a snow-capped mountain, a cool, crisp autumn morning, like we woke up to this morning. We, we see those things and immediately there ought to come to our minds, this is a depiction of the glory of God formed by our Lord himself. And the greatness of the beauty that we see ought to bring us to wonder and marvel at his glory. Wherever we go, we find God already there. You cannot escape him. He is wherever you are, and he is there to see what you are doing. I think there is probably no psalm that, at least for me, depicts this reality better than Psalm 139. I want to look, or just read, if you don't mind briefly, those uh, few verses, verses 5 through 12, and see if you can't hear that picture of an infinite God who is with us in the most desperate of circumstances and in the best of circumstances. Beginning with the fifth, fifth verse, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. 
if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the, the, the light around me will be night. Try that again. And the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now that's good news. That's good news. We think of difficult days as dark ones. But for God, it's all the same. He sees as clearly in the dark as he does in the light. And thus, our path, because it is guided by that light of God's word, is always a sure one. And I can say that despite the fact that there are many things about my own future that I am completely unaware of. I have no idea as to how I will meet certain problems, but I know my God will be there. And like David, I know he is before me and he is behind me and he has his hand upon me. Once we have considered all that there is to see in creation, we have not yet begun to see the limits of God's glory. His glory is not just set in the heavens, but it is set above the heavens. As Solomon prayed in that prayer at the dedication of the temple, he says, I know this temple can't contain you, for even the highest heavens can't contain you. So wherever the highest heavens end, he says, God, that still is not enough to take all of you in. When we have marveled at the mechanics of an atom or at the grandeur of the stars, we still haven't begun to scratch the surface of the true glory of God, the majesty of that mountain, the crisp autumn day. The, the, these kind of things, these are just faint echoes of truly how wondrous and how mighty and how glorious is our God. And it is a glory that is revealed even in some of the weakest of God's creatures. We, we don't need the great men of the earth to show us what God is like, to show us something of his majesty. We can turn to the smallest child and we can see something of the glory of God. God can trust the proclamation of his glory to those who at best can only lisp something of what he is like, something of the praise that is due his name. Each child that is born into our world is a testimony to the power and the wisdom of our God who knits that child together in the mother's womb. Let his detractors speak all they want of natural selection and biological necessity. Let them say what they will. Anyone who considers the wonder of an infant springing from the womb after conception is going to have to say there is something glorious about that beyond man's comprehension. The childish chatter of these unbelievers can be put to shame by the studied eloquence of children who know little more than the basic vocabulary of life. While the chief priests denounced Jesus, do you remember what the children were doing? They were coming to Christ and they were even singing his hosannas. One of the early uh, preachers in America actually came from England, George Whitfield. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. He would stand up on a stage and preach to whoever would come around. And he was often pelted with fruits and rocks and such. And it seemed that there were always children around him. 
They would suffer the same things as he did, and yet they remained seated there with him to be able to hear what he had to say. Tell me that the wise of the earth have that kind of wisdom. Tell me that they have the understanding of the reality of the world that we live in, and yet they don't understand how great our God is. The children understand, and it is thus up to us as God's people to see that they understand so that they can pass that understanding on to the next generation. God's strength has routinely been made manifest, as we saw this morning, not in the strength of great men, but in the weakness of those who are willing to put their lives in his hand and trust that he will guide them. God's enemies may claim that there is no evidence for his existence, but I believe that unbiased minds see it and see it easily. When the Sanhedrin questioned Peter and John, what does it say their reaction was? They were astonished that uneducated men like these were able to speak the kind of wisdom they did. They were astonished. But why, did, why were they astonished? Why, what was it the disciples had? Well, they had been with Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had seen him live, and they said, that is what I am going to preach. In the knowledge of what they had seen with their own eyes, heard with their ears, they were able to put to shame the leaders, the religious leaders of that day and age. Those who reject the existence of God can do so only by building a case to fit a preconceived idea. They start with what they want to hear, and essentially what it boils down to is, I want a life and a world where there is no God, and they build on that to get to whatever it takes to convince themselves they're right. There is no God out there. After a hundred years, evolution is not still a proven theory. It is not one that there is evidence that can be laid out and everybody agrees, yep, that's, that's what, what is right. A hundred years and still there is no widespread approval based upon the facts that can be presented it is rather the end product of preconceived ideas that there is no God and it is supported by random, sometimes unrelated facts in their minds that prove their case. Well, they don't prove their case. They haven't proven it to me at least. And I continue to preach, teach, and believe that our world is the way it is because we have a God whose wisdom is beyond our imaginations, weaving it all together to produce exactly what he wants, not just when it was created at first, but today. His hands are still at work in creating and shaping our world to be exactly what he wants, that his glory may be known, and that our future will be secured in the knowledge that he is with us and is going to take us home. Then there is the contemplation that follows in, in David's psalm here, there in verses 3 through 4, I consider your hev heavens, the works of your hands, the moon, the stars. And then the question comes, in the light of all this, what in the world is man that you would ever stop and actually take notice of him? The immensity of the universe humbles even the most proud of men. We... We consider something simple, a, a thundercloud and the rain that it contains, m more rain than I, I can imagine flowing out of my faucet over 
well, at least hopefully the next few months. It's, there's, there's immense water and there it hangs. Now, I know scientists can, can tell us why it's up there and it hasn't come down yet. But you stop and you look at that and, and try to imagine how you would have fixed it so that it would have happened that way. You, you, you couldn't have come up with anything. We look at a moon that is a quarter of a million miles away from us. And yet it affects how the water and the seas come up on the shore, the tides that go in and out. It is, it is a, an amazing thing. In the planet this, uh, just a, a little bit north of us, Jupiter, you can fit 300 Earths. And you go, man, that's a huge thing sitting out there. And yet, and yet our sun could hold 300,000 Earths. You know, that's, that's a lot of space in there. How did it get there? Why is it working the way that it does to give us heat in the summer when we need it, to be able to allow our, our food to grow and for us to be nourished by it? How, we, how it was put there, we know. Our God one day simply said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a sun, and there was a sun. It was just that simple for him. The nearest sun, at least so I am told, is a little bit over 20 trillion miles away. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxies, and and there are just as many galaxies as there are suns. In the line of that, if our solar system were simply to blink out of existence today, it would no more be noticed by the rest of the universe than a leaf falling in the midst of the forest would be. We're nothing. Our, our planet is nothing. It is, it, is, it is one of those humbling things to us as a man. Man is but a speck of dust on a speck of dust wandering about the universe and unnoticed by, by most of the universe as such. The power required to set the stars and the moon in place is as devastating to our pride as all that is when we stop and consider it. The heavens, though, they're but the work of God's fingers. The sun set in place by his hand. This is, this is a picture of a God whose power knows no limits. We are terrified by bombs that blow up cities. Perhaps, again, some of you remember those days when we were told to run and hide under our desks if there was ever a nuclear bomb that hit hit nearby. You know, as I grew older, I began to wonder what that was all about because I'm pretty sure that glass wall wasn't going to help us any. But but nevertheless, we were told to do that. We were terrified. We were terrified. We were going to be destroyed by those nuclear bombs. And yet, God makes stars that could simply engulf our solar system. One, one blast, and it would be gone. All of it, not just our sun, not just our earth, but the whole of the solar system would be gone. God flung the galaxies to the very edges of space, and he established their orbits. God set the stars in their place, and he didn't just kind of fling them out there and hope they went someplace. Hey, God, which, which star is that? I, I don't know. It's just one of them that I threw out there. No, he knows their names. 
He knows each one of them, where it is, what it's supposed to be doing, and yet he controls all that's going on on our earth also. Now, is that not a wonderfully wise God, a wonderfully powerful God that we serve? We forget where we put our wallet, or at least I do. I I look for my keys, and I I know we just had them a few minutes ago. Where in the world did they go? I I haven't been out of this room, and yet I can't find those silly things. That's the way the human mind works, and yet God has to deal with the vastness of this space that we have talked about, that David speaks of, and he knows where everything belongs and where everything will be tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. We think of the vastness of space, the intricacies of those atoms that put together make our bodies up, and we go, that, that, is, that is truly wondrous. But you know what the most wondrous thing is? God made us. God has decided in his infinite wisdom that of all the creation that he put together, he said, Man is the pinnacle of it all. Man is the pinnacle. The sun and stars reflect his majesty and power, but it is man and man alone that is made in the image of God. I've heard down through the years, story after story, the dolphins are smarter than men. Apes could run things better than us. Of course, I know a few politicians that might be true, but God said no. It is not creation as such. It is not this or that animal. It is man himself who is the very pinnacle of all. And for this one reason and one reason alone, we are made like God. Isn't that incredible? Why would the God that we have been speaking of give such consideration to us that he would make us that that way? I know that in the schools, that matter of self-esteem is a very important thing. Well, I tell you what, here's, here's the real reason we esteem life. It's the reason we stand against abortion. It is the reason that we stand for those who are helpless because every human life on this earth is a reflection of the glory of our God and thus ought to bring our hearts, raise our hearts to consider him again in his greatness. This image, of course, is reflected as seen in the first chapters of Genesis. It is reflected in part by the dominion that God has given to us. We are over the animal creation. I know, some again, some people see man as but another animal, and the, the world would actually be better off if there were less of us or none of us. Man's messed everything up. Well, we, we probably have done something of a job on that. But I tell you this, God still says, man is the best I have to offer. He is the greatest that I have to offer because, again, he is made in my image. We are small and frail, made only of the dust of the earth, and we will return to the dust of the earth. That, that is our destiny because of the curse. We are bound for death and decay and yet exalted above the rest of creation. I am one with David that marvels that God would think so much of us as that. Think so much, in fact, that he says, I will send my son to die for them. Now that 
That is a God who cares. That is a God who loves us. This glory corrupted by the fall, of course, is not seen very well in men sometimes today. It is still there. You still bear the image of God in you. The unbelieving man still bears the image of God in him. And yet, we don't see it perfectly until we look at Jesus. What is man supposed to look like? What are you going to look like when you get to heaven? Well, look at Jesus and you will see the character. You will see the honor. You will see the glory that will be ours some days. Because our Lord in heaven, wherever that is, with that physical body that he has, is but the first fruits of what is coming. We will see him as he is and we will, as a result, become like he is. Not, not God, of course. We will always be creature. He will always be the creator. But there will be that character about us, that spiritual life about us that reflects him as we should have from the beginning. He is the one who has been, been given authority over all things. All power, all dominion over all things belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are being conformed to his image will reflect that image more faithfully. Not the high and noble men of the earth. God is not going to look through the registry of kings and emperors to be able to find those that he says, these are my children because they did so well. He's going to look and to see whose names are written in the book of life. Written there with the blood of Jesus Christ himself, setting us free from the dominion of sin and the corruption that comes with it. To the world we may appear weak and foolish, but in every believer that you encounter, you see the glory of God like you will see it in no place else in creation. That is who we are. That is what God has made us to be. And and it brings us not really to think, wow, we're really great, Though, though we are because of who we are, created in God's image, and redeemed and conformed to the image of Christ his son. We, we do have a greatness and glory about us, but that's not really where it ends, is it? Because as you see in that last verse, as David finishes up, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us wonder, as we should, at the greatness of the church of God. The people who gather Sunday by Sunday to be able to enjoy fellowship with each other, but more importantly, join in fellowship with God himself. Let us, let us wonder at the marvel of Christ's church that has endured so much. But when we do, let us stop and remember why we have endured. It is because God has kept us. It is because he has laid his hand upon us, taken hold of us, and said, you are not mine just on the day that you announce your faith in me. You are mine forever, because I have given you of myself that you may live and reign with me forever. Let us give thanks to our God. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for goodness that is truly inconceivable. Why would a powerful and a holy God want to deal with those who are made of dust, will return to dust and have corrupted that image that you implanted in us. Why would you care? Well, 
Perhaps we cannot answer that question fully, but this much we do know. You do care. You love us. You have cared for us from the day that we were born, and you will continue doing so into eternity. Let us give thanks for the greatness of the God that we serve, the greatness of the future that we have, and all because of your love for us, your Son who died for us, and your Spirit who works inside of us on a daily basis to make us more and more like the Savior that we love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.